friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on on Sirius XM Channel 130. Our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we have my dear friend and TCA colleague Ashley McGuire with us to discuss the breaking news over the past week regarding Governor Andrew Cuomo resigning amid a bombshell investigation alleging multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Of course, this follows other tragedies, including his treatment of the elderly amid the first wave of the pandemic last year, and also his treatment of the unborn, given New York's very extreme abortion laws. Ashley wrote a great piece in USA Today discussing all the victims of Governor Cuomo and what we might learn in this moment. But first, we have Dr. Teresa Burke with us. She's the executive director and foundress of Rachel's Vineyard. This is a program that provides an exceptional and effective recovery process for victims of trauma and those who have spent years in talk therapy but still struggle to move beyond traumatic experiences. Welcome to the show, Dr. Burke. I'm so happy to be with you this afternoon. You know, I know that in Rachel's Vineyard, you do a lot of work with women and men who are post-abortion. And I find it interesting and very proper, very right, very proper, that abortion is is right up there in one of the the traumas of life, the traumas that can happen to us, traumas that sometimes are inflicted on us, <laughs> and and something that we do experience as a trauma. I mean, beyond the the baby, of course, who loses his or her life. Yeah, it's absolutely a trauma, and unfortunately, I don't think that many people connect the symptoms they suffer because abortion is considered health care. In many cases, it's touted as a woman's right. It's her choice. And that's usually actually not how women experience abortion. It's not experienced as an act of empowerment necessarily at all. And um, I think the most interesting thing in all my years of doing this, which is like going on 35 now, that People, when they finally give themselves permission to grieve or they're in a place where they invite themselves to, like, look at it or speak about it, it's um, shocking to even them, the buried level of feeling and emotion and thoughts, because they usually put all those, almost like put the trauma and the some of the pain of the procedure on hold in favor of getting through it, mm-hmm. and then they try to just march on, like good military soldiers who don't have time to look back behind them mm-hmm. and um, feeling that it was something that they had to do. And there's a whole lot of fallout from that in terms of not only the trauma, but the moral and the spiritual injury that Rachel's Vineyard really specializes in helping people recover from, which in, if I was to summarize it, it would be many people might know, not everybody, but many people might know that God forgives them, but on some level they can't forgive themselves. And this leads to a lot of the self-destructive behaviors, maybe sabotaging life's opportunities, a lot of guilt and shame that's deeply repressed. And when they when they come on the retreat, they understand in a big way how that 
sort of not dealing with that created more problems. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's other people who know right away they made a mistake. They regret it so deeply and painfully. And um, But there's also people who wait till they're six years old to, to go back to something that happened, feels like, a lifetime ago. And there's profound feelings about it that they're very surprised by. I know some women, some older women who've had abortions, women that I'm that I'm close to, the kind of, you know, that kind of closeness that they would bring these things up with me. And um, they they mention abortions that happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And I see that there is fresh pain in their eyes. And it always strikes me as um, such a tragedy that so many people are walking around with the wound of abortion, whether it's the mothers, the, the fathers who may or may not have had a say, uh, friends that drove them to the abortionist or lent them the money, uh, people who who would have liked to help them, people who love them or would have liked to help them and weren't able to for whatever reason. And it, it's a it's a beautiful thing that you are able to offer this um, this way forward for all those people. The the. For every, you know, I think when I see those numbers of millions of children aborted, I think, yes, it's a huge tragedy for that child whose life was taken from them. But there are uh, countless numbers of people around that abortion who are hurt by that process, by that act. You're so right about that. The mothers and fathers and then the siblings. It's something we rarely think about. But, you know, when a lot of a lot of people will learn that their mom had other abortions and that would have been a big brother, a big sister. And um, the the impact also on healthcare workers is something that mm, you see yeah. a lot of, because even someone who does the ultrasounds, um, many ultrasounds, and they're happy to report the news, and they might be looking at a child, and they'll hear right there in that room that she wants an abortion, and um, they already feel an attachment and a moral injury is in there as well. So um, that's, that's very true. Yeah, I, I've seen that. I've seen that myself. Yeah, of course you have. And doctors, even the abortionists, nurses, whose job it is to put the baby back together to make sure it's not an incomplete abortion, they have a trauma, and it's a visual trauma. And I remember one nurse coming, and she cried as she was introducing herself, and, and she just said that I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know where else I could get help for this, except for people who were there grieving the same pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful. Yeah, it's true. So many different people touched in such a in such a, um, a painful way by abortion. One thing that uh, that I've experienced also is women that um, that that learn the enormity of what happened to them or what they did when they go ahead and have children and welcome subsequent children into their lives and wrap their arms around that, that beautiful first child that they've given birth to. And then they see the, gra the grave injury that they've done themselves by depriving themselves of a prior child. I've, I've had that experience. I've talked to women who've, who, and, and it's absolutely heartbreaking when, when you hear them describe that, that great loss that, that it took them some time to understand. Yeah, and the sometime is a period of denial that isn't uncommon, just where you block it out. And then when you're witnessing, and I'm sure you know all about this as a physician yourself, um, but but when they have the, the first ultrasound, which should be such a joyous experience for any parent, they want to take that photograph because now you can see it so clearly, clearly mm -hmm. than the old days. 
and then recognize all the bodies there. It's very young. All the parts are there. But this is probably one of the problems that women aren't told. They said, oh, it's a simple thing. It's the size of a tooth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're given a lot of misinformation, even about fetal development. And so to be exposed to that, perhaps for the first time, when you're become pregnant with the wanted child, it is a deep grieving. And I know that in my own work, in my early career, I saw this in terms of postpartum depressions and um, even postpartum psychosis when the wanted child was born because all that comes swiftly into their consciousness. And instead of bonding with the child, the child almost becomes a trigger to what they've lost, you know, that they were unaware of. So it's bought front and center. And if there hasn't been healing done, it can be like a really tragic time of not not bonding and loving and all the excitement. And I feel like that's a great tragedy because it's probably one of the most beautiful moments in a woman's life to be able to welcome that life into the world. And when there's trauma covering it, mm. it can really turn this beautiful experience into something that's quite unpleasant for her because of what it means. Of course, the baby is, is there and many women love them, but I find that women who go who do grief work related to their loss, they don't have to shut down that part of their heart that was made to love. And that's what happens like because their heart was created to love that baby and you have to shut it down on some level. And they don't realize until after healing that that becomes a domino of shutting down of many other feelings and emotions. So that's a beautiful thing of healing is that people come back to their senses, senses in, I I mean, their physical senses of being able to feel the water on the back of their neck in a shower, that there is a numbness that can take over or shutting down. And they don't even realize that they've, part of them has died too, in many cases, until their heart has been restored. What a sad, what a sad, sad thing this is. And, and, as, and as I said earlier, uh, all those millions of children that have been aborted come with all these sad stories attached to them and all these sad realities. Why do you think that, that we as women, as mothers or potential mothers, why do we accept the cultural narrative still to this day, knowing so many of us knowing the pain of abortion and knowing women who've experienced it? Why do we keep accepting that cultural narrative that says that abortion is a liberating uh, force for us? I don't believe that's the way most women experience it, but that's the narrative that's touted by those that promote abortion. And it's true that they don't want negative consequences known. It's true that when research is brought forth, they'll bury it. It's even hard to get things published. Um, A lot of post-abortion researchers in this country have better luck getting things published in other countries where it's not so politicized. Um, And I think that that's because as... As a nation, we're just uncomfortable. I think that there's some, like Los Angeles Times polls that was showing 50 people are morally uncomfortable with it. So we compromise it as a necessary evil without really recognizing the deep impact and destructiveness that that can go on for a long time and be rather costly when you think about it in terms of the anxiety, the depression, the drug addiction that happens, the prescription drug addictions, the the just the overall, you know, emotional and physical consequences because it's a violent solution that invades a woman's psychological and physical integrity. And there's consequences to that that we bear. The body will bear the burden. And it also gets born in, it gets, um, there's a burden in the relationship as well because 
this can create great division and unhappiness, bitterness, and resentment with one's partner, whether it's a married person or an unmarried woman. So a lot of relationships struggle after that, precisely because you've abandoned a huge part of yourself. What came of the love relationship or whatever it was, if a child comes from that, you're bound to experience problems in intimacy later, and that's borne out by research as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're talking with Dr. Teresa Burke. She's the executive director and founder of Rachel's Vineyard, helping to heal post-abortive women and men. And Teresa, I wanted to ask you about men. How does how does how do men figure into this into this great tragedy that is abortion? Well, a lot of men believe that there, there's certainly a number. There's a lot of research to indicate that a lot of coercion goes on of men encouraging her to do the best thing. In fact, um, the number one cause of death during pregnancy is murder, and it's usually by men who attribute the murder as not wanting to pay child support. Mm. So there's that piece. There's certainly men out there who have absolutely no say and no rights when it comes to wanting that baby and the woman deciding to have an abortion. And we've had men come through Rachel's Vineyard who were in that position, and it's, it's almost like a feeling of being completely disempowered. Here he is wanting to nurture and protect and defend the life of his child, and he has no legal rights to do that. Um, so that's another category of men. And then there's the men who believe they're being like kind of progressive and say, I'll support whatever you decide. But frankly, the way that a woman hears that is, I'm not interested in fighting for this baby, and, mm-hmm. and I'll support whatever you decide, which is a very casual, she'll just interpret it as, you don't care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And here they think they're being so so helpful and supportive, but what what I think most women want to feel is that the child is wanted and welcomed and that they are loved, not that this is a problem. I wonder if what you say about uh, relationships falling apart, even if there's no attempt at coercion to obtain the abortion, just the fact that the the father of the child doesn't wrap his arms around that woman and say, this is our baby, we will make this work, we will love him or her together. Well, there's a resentment, I think, inside, but you know, the interesting thing, because you said, why do women put up with this? You know, because we don't want to be resented, and the world is hard enough to get on as a woman, and the culture and society and our jobs don't make that easy. Like even women in the military, there's so many abortions because you can't be a soldier and you're not going to get a maternity leave. You know what I mean? <laughs> when you're in the middle of a war and there's so many professions where they, you know, like if we really had advanced as progressively women or, or you know, having equal rights, there should be like a nursery on every corporate campus. We should have extended leaves and and whatnot and there's so many jobs that don't give that if you want a maternity leave you've got to take a pay you don't get paid you know not every job covers like that so um i just feel that the society makes it hard the cost of living makes it hard and there's so many pressures economic pressures you know that people experience and and i think that that's why they don't want to be resented they don't want a man to feel like he has to marry her if it's not something that he wants women are very very sensitive because at the end of the day a lot of women are accommodating and they try to please very hard mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and love. <clears throat> yeah absolutely and um, I can see that I can see how a woman's accommodating and nurturing and tender nature 
um, unfortunately can be turned against her and she can be made to feel that she has a duty to uh, eliminate her own child. And then something that yeah. she will wake up to later uh, and to the horror of this, or maybe right away, right? Maybe, maybe even as it's happening, it's all sinking well, into her who, consciousness. The people who kind of can't hold off under ideological ideas that say this is good for me, they're women who have previous histories of trauma. And, you know, one of the things that I saw very quickly, and I've written about it in some of my books, um, was the link between previous histories of sexual abuse and later abortion. So there's already been a violation of their boundary. There's already been a, been used by men and then discarded. And there's already been a lack of having any control over their body. And so to say that this is a way to control your body, to have more abuse, to be discarded, like this is a trauma on trauma. In fact, I even write about abortion as a traumatic reenactment of previous sexual abuse. And what that means is that the sexual abuse was a secret. It was held in this, it, it occurs in the most, you know, the area of their womb, the gift of their sexuality, and there's a violation and intrusion and a violence there. And um, afterward, the, afterwards, they're, they keep that a secret, and I saw the same dynamic. In fact, people who were going to complain that they had post-abortion trauma, even if they had no sexual abuse, their therapists were saying, oh, you must have been sexually abused, and then going down with false memories, you know, because the symptoms of, of sexual abuse are very similar to the symptoms of post-abortion trauma. And just um, but keeping that secret allowing the violence to occur, submitting to an unwanted thing. There's so many parallels where a woman would just feel powerless, like, I have to do this. I don't have any choice. And that's that numbing, trauma-driven sense of freeze. And I've heard so many women speak about that. In fact, it was so common, I believe, that it was 60 to 65% of everyone coming through the doors of our retreat. And this matches the matches the statistics in the bigger um, population of the number of women under, enduring some sexual abuse, one in four that's reported, right? Teresa, tell us about your retreat. What does your retreat offer these poor uh, traumatized women and men and, and friends, friends and, and I'm sure grandparents and, and all the people yeah, involved? It's, it's usually men and women who suffered the loss of a child through abortion and certainly siblings come to grieve their mother's abortion. Um, grandparents have come because their daughter had one, and I always say it's better for you to grieve before you try to approach her, because a lot of times, and some parents force their daughter to have an abortion, and they'll come too, if, um, if she invites them to come to see how this is hurt, not just her, because it's easy to say, oh, you did the best thing, and, and so many women feel like something's so wrong with them when they have these acute grief reactions, and they're depressed, and they have anxiety disorders, and many times suicide suicidal feelings after their abortion so it's a big deal it's a really big deal it's dang it's dangerous you know when we look at the data on this and um but if they force their daughter to have an abortion and they can't validate her loss first of all they couldn't accept the life of the baby and then when she's grieving they can't validate her loss or to say you would have been a good mother and i think that's an underlying thing that a lot of people feel ouch that sounds that, so sad when you say that Teresa. Well, just the, the idea that this attacks their maternal identity. And many people, because of the circumstances or whatever, their age or their poverty, they came to the conclusion or people around them did that it's better to kill that child 
than to have you as a mom. And, and, um, I think that this is such a painful lie that many women carry. In fact, they decide not to have children even when things are good in their life because they feel they don't deserve one. And this is probably one of the biggest things I love about healing is watching people walk away from the retreat reclaiming their motherhood, their love, their capacity to be a tremendous mother. You know, when they, re- when they resolved all that. And I, I see it as a a great grief when people come for retreats later in life and their whole life they deprive themselves of the gift of the child because they didn't feel worthy or deserving because they carried that, that moral injury, you know, that spiritual injury of of having destroyed a child and then they don't feel worthy for another. So um, this is where healing can be so important. And so many women, they say the same thing, maybe have never told anybody that deep down they feel that, even when they are blessed with a child and they are mothers, until they heal this, sometimes they just feel they feel um, sort of hypervigilant that somebody could hurt their child or that their baby would be injured or if something happened to the baby, it's God's punishment, hmm. you know? And how do you help them on the retreat? What's the mechanism by which you you walk them through that and and deliver them from all that pain? Well, we have a beautiful um, psychological and integrated spiritual program. And when I say spiritual, it's having experiences um, of God's love and compassion through scripture stories where we enter the scripture with our own life and our own trauma. So we act them out. that sounds funny, but let me give you a little example. Like Jesus and the blind man. So we read a meditation where you're the blind person and that you've wanted to see and he's coming along. And so you reach out and you say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And then the pastor or the priest there will say, what do you want for me to do for you? And then you answer out loud. These exercises are all in darkness. So your heart is having an encounter with the living God who's there with mercy, compassion, and healing. And that sort of removes this thing that God's out to get me. He wants to punish me. And we go through the retreat of all the exercises are designed to facilitate speaking your truth. And... Um, having it witnessed and validated, and then going through a process of grief work so that you can reconcile with yourself, with the child, and with God, if that's a piece of what you need to do. And um, hearing the stories of everybody brings back the memories and the feelings. And a beautiful thing happens in that, oh, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. Mm -hmm. I used to think I was crazy for feeling this. So there's a tremendous normalizing of the experience and um, just permission to look at it and speak of it, because, frankly, people don't want to hear a story, especially if they've told you it's going to be best. You don't want to go back to the counselor who said, oh, this is going to make your life better when you're carrying on, and people don't want to hear it if they've had any role in promoting abortion or pushing her into that or saying it's a good decision. They don't want to hear about her nightmares, about her panic attacks, Maybe and maybe these a lot of women um, keep it a complete secret from everyone in their lives for for decades. That's, that's been my experience. That it's such a taboo subject. There's so little support for a woman grieving after an abortion, and even if she's to go tell someone, it's that dismissive. Oh, you can have another someday when the time is right. But that doesn't honor the unique life and individual person of that child that any mother would feel. 
why that's why a mother with a wanted child is excited to hear she's carrying a baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Everything changes and everybody celebrates, but you get pregnant and you're not sure what you're going to do. Like a lot of people say they they tell that good news and all they hear is, "Well, what are you going to do about it?" Like this is the worst thing that could happen. Here, let me give you a number of somebody I know that you could go to for a quick abortion. So it's like this sort of this almost immediate dismissal of of the fact that this could actually be, even under, we know that people who have unplanned pregnancies, they would never give the baby back when it's over. Like there, ha- there's a joy that happens and, and a healing that happens, even if the grandparents were shocked and surprised. Like everyone oh, absolutely. Everyone loves the baby. Everybody's life. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's why it takes nine months to have a baby, because it takes nine months, even when it's wanted, to adjust to the changes that child will bring, which is, you know, I have five children. I'm not sure about you, but I have five baby, too. <laughs> every baby is a big surprise, and every baby is uh, like, "Oh my gosh, how am I going to keep doing all of this?" You know, so there's an adjustment required, but certainly a joy later. But I feel that abortion is kind of pressured on people at a time that the shock is still there. They haven't adjusted to the idea, and it's offered as a swift solution. And I could say a defective product. And when they find out the product is defective, it's too late. Hmm? Hmm. Teresa, I think that it's uh, absolutely fabulous that you devoted your life to this beautiful work. How can our listeners uh, learn more about Rachel's Vineyard and and how to find abortion healing? Well, there's over a thousand retreats all over the world for Rachel's Vineyard. And you could go on our website. It's um, www.rachelsvineyard.com. No apostrophe in Rachel's. It's R-A-C-H-E-L-S vineyard.org. We also have a hotline on our website that people could call if they want to talk to someone. All of these sites are are staffed by very compassionate teams that have been trained in in Rachel's Vineyard, and and me, most of them, many of them, have suffered the loss of a child themselves through an abortion. So no one's there to judge you. It's a safe place. It's a, a period set aside. I love the retreat because you can leave, go to a very beautiful retreat center, and work through this loss with others without any interruption because it's hard even in a therapy session to go in dig that stuff up for an hour mm-hmm. and then leave and we know that people leave looking completely different the faces are different we we call it like a radical facelift because it, everyone looks different and I don't know a retreat out there that can't say that and the participants say that so I would encourage anybody that suffered this loss or you want to support someone who you know deserves healing and has been very very hurt by this that there's hope and and Rachel's Vineyard is here for you with open arms and a lot of years of experience in ministering well thank you Teresa for joining us how wonderful wonderful work and I hope that many people who heard this will take advantage of it and think of friends and family who are suffering so thank you thank you Dr. Gracie for this opportunity Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today we have my dear friend and TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, with us to discuss the breaking news over the past week regarding Governor Andrew Cuomo resigning amid a bombshell investigation alleging multiple allegations of sexual harassment. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hey, it's great to be with you, Gracie. I really want to talk to you about this fabulous piece that you just published in USA Today, in which you connected the resignation of Andrew Cuomo 
to a whole host of moral failures <laughs> that, that Andrew Cuomo has, you know, shown throughout his whole life, his political life, and very especially the horrible moral failure of supporting abortion, even the most brutal abortion in the third trimester. Yeah, you know, everybody is talking about um, the fact that he's announced that he's going to resign. And, you know, they're thinking of it in the context of the, you know, giant report that just came out, um, 170 pages documenting his extensive um, mistreatment and sexual harassment of women and creating a hostile workplace for women. And, and then, you know, this comes on the heels of the fact that, you know, his office was being investigated by the FBI uh, for the way it handled the elderly during the COVID pandemic. And so, you know, I just sort of tied into that um, his support for late-term abortion. That might seem a little out of left field, but um, in the piece I argue that they're all connected That and, and that actually, you know, I think people are really sort of shocked by what's come out about Governor Cuomo because he was sort of became this very beloved figure during the pandemic, but... I argue that we kind of knew everything that we needed to know about him when uh, he showed his sort of celebratory support for the most extreme abortion bills. Under his guidance, the state um, and his championship, the state of New York passed the most extreme abortion bill um, that had ever been passed. And, How extreme is it, you know, Ashley? What do you mean? When you say it, most extreme, what do you mean exactly? It's abortion for any reason, on demand, taxpayer funded, up until the moment of birth. You know, the kind of thing that people have pointed out is you only find that in like five other countries in the world, China, North Korea. So it's any kind of abortion for any reason, um, absolutely no restrictions or limitations. If I recall, they even dropped like the licensing requirements for abortion providers. Like, I mean, even dropping anything that would guarantee safety, uh, you know, cleanliness of clinics. I mean, talk about total backpedaling. <laughs> That's disgusting. And, and he 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 really drove that, and he he made late term abortion a central part of his public persona, his his platform. Do I remember? Do I remember correctly that they lit up the Empire State Building when that law was passed? Is that true, or am I am I imagining that? You know, you're not imagining it. I can't remember if it was for the anniversary of Roe v. Wade or if it was for passing that. But um, I wrote a different piece when they passed it because there was a stand a round of a standing ovation of mm, applause yes, when, the bill, right. when, he, when he signed the bill into law. And he was sitting there smiling as if, um, you know, he was doing something good. And the argument that I make is that, you know, the way we treat the very most vulnerable people um, is going to be completely tied into the way we treat other vulnerable people, whether it's, you know, elderly people who are, um, dying of COVID, especially in the beginning of this pandemic, when you know they were they and everybody else was terrified, um, and then the way he treated all these young women who were starting out their careers um, in the you know what I call the New York power machine, just this sort of notorious place uh, where you know someone like him really sets the tone. And so, but basically, my argument was we shouldn't be shocked because you know. This was a guy who was celebrating late-term abortion with standing ovation. That I, told I us feel all we need to know. the more, the longer I live, the more I feel that there's two kinds of men. There are men who protect, 
And then there are men who tend to be predators or people people who don't protect and sometimes even um, you know gobble up others in their in their whatever they're they're trying to achieve. And and I see that connection. I see that connection that you're making. I mean, if he's not a person who feels any protective impulses towards babe, fully formed babies and their mothers who can feel pain, even against the, any fully any protective impulses towards the women who um, who are being um, you know taken in, and being aborted in unsafe circumstances and in you know dirty circumstances, then how? Why would he have any protective impulses towards the elderly and nursing homes? No, absolutely. And that's that's really the argument that I make. And I think, you know, as a culture and a society, we need to, I think people find all this stuff so shocking and they're like, how could this have happened? And there are several articles that I read that said, you know, the things that he's accused of doing are so shocking. It's like, how could this have been happening in broad daylight, right in front of other people? And, you know, I would just say, but we are, you know, as a society, horrific things are are happening, you know, abortion is happening right in front of us, you know, not in front of us because we can't see it, but right under our noses. And um, I just think we've been so coarsened as a society so as to not see the connection between, you know, how we treat the vulnerable here affects how we understand and think about the vulnerable there. And I think you could even tie in something like assisted suicide into all of this, that, um, you know, these are all connected and in this sort of Me Too era, you know, I think it's not at all surprising that these predatory men have been, you know, put into powerful positions. Um, Of course they're going to be champions of abortion because it's what helps them, it's what facilitates their predatory behavior. It makes it easy to cover up. It makes it easy to, you know, abuse and and intimidate young women. Um, And I think it's all really connected. You know, another thing point that I make in the article is just how the duplicitousness, um, the fact that he was, you know, Mr. Daily Press Conference, mm-hmm. you know, condescending to us all, you know, I mean, that's the part that I think is really hard for people. Like, I, I can't think of a uh, another example there where, where there's so much whiplash where it went from especially so quickly, like a year ago at this time, people were watching his press conferences every day and it was like the highlight of their day. And it gave them comfort because he was, he seemed like a leader. He seemed like someone who had sort of a moral, you know, undertone to what he was doing. And here he was instructing people to cover up how many people were dying because of his botched approach. Um, And he was, you know, telling people to change the numbers of the elderly that had died under his, under his watch, and he was going around sexually harassing women. I mean, he was a total fraud. And I connected back to his own dad, Mario Cuomo, who was a pro-life Catholic politician, also was the governor of New York. And, um, you know, it was his father who actually went to Notre Dame and basically uh, said, it's okay to be, you know, the whole personally pro-life, publicly Mm -hmm. pro-choice. And I'm like, he basically started this whole, you know, you have two visages, like you have this over here that you believe, but then you turn around and do this. And it's like, again, why are we then surprised when his own son says, you know, I'm Mr. Champion of Women's Rights, except I'm over here sexually harassing women. 
and I'm Mr. Champion of the Vulnerable, except I'm leading standing ovations for the industrial-scale execution of children and covering up the way um, my policies led to, like, mass deaths in nursing homes during a pandemic. I mean... Well, his father his father championed this new incoherence that a Catholic could be incoherent, right? Could say, okay, I personally feel about... I, I personally follow the dictates of my faith and the idea that all human beings are children of God, but in my politics, I have to be a different person. So that's a terrible incoherence. But I feel like his son... Um, Andrew Cuomo is coherent in his life. I mean, he is a person who, um, you know, touts abortion, supports abortion. Um, and really, he he shows that abortion as a liberating experience really does liberate, but it liberates men to be predatory. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, I think, I love the way you put it, the new incoherence. I think that's the part that's just so kind of disorienting for people. And, you know, I think we're also seeing this play out um, with our president who, you know, he's somebody who's really perpetuating the incoherence. He, he campaigned heavily on his Catholic faith and then turns around and flouts his faith and actually proposes and basically uses his power and his platform to work to undermine the church and the faith that he, you know, claims. And it's very confusing to people. Uh, and then the frustrating part is to then feel, you know, if you're sort of calling out, wait, this doesn't, this is not consistent, you know, you get condescended to as if, you know, you're not, there's, you haven't got with the program. Haven't you figured out that you can, you know, um, compartmentalize your life and have your beliefs over here, but live your life in a completely different way? And uh, it's just a, a very pervasive problem in our culture. And, you know, it's just like one after another of these uh, public personas and, and leaders, I think, are really perpetuating it. And I, I haven't seen a more clear example than Andrew Cuomo in a really long time in terms of personifying and embodying this, as you put it, new incoherence. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Ashley McGuire, my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, about her great piece in USA Today titled, Andrew Cuomo Resigns, He Personifies Abuse of Power at the Expense of the Vulnerable. Yes, Ashley, you, you connect the dots with, with Joe Biden um, and other co- Catholic politicians who are, promo- who are confusing people and causing scandal in, in, the, in the Christian sense of scandal of causing sin because they're teaching, as you say, that your beliefs don't actually have to um, affect the way that you act. And it's very hard. It's a very terrible thing because as Catholics, as Christians, as any person of faith, we find ourselves in this country right now, um, you know, swimming against the current, wanting wanting things because we know that they're good, that they're right, that God wants them for us, for our neighbors, and being told to keep our religion and our faith out of the public square, right? So uh, right. Joe Biden, um, he's, he's showing us how to do that, but it's a terrible thing because as Christians, we're supposed to be leavening society. Right, absolutely. I think, you know, I think the church has actually done a good job of articulating, you know, that, yes, this is a wonderful and pluralistic society that we live in, but that we are called, like, our faith should inform every aspect of our lives, and that doesn't end when you enter the political sphere. In fact, if anything, it should continue to guide you, and that doesn't mean, 
you know, theocracy, what it means is that, well, for starters, that politicians don't, you know, consider themselves to be above the law and moral norms, which seems to be actually kind of the sort of modus operandi of these um, political figures. Not just political figures, it's like in every, it's in every domain. I mean, Hollywood is another big one, Um, entertainment, news, media. But no, I mean, we're called to advance the common good, that calling, um, you know, that's each and every one of us in our everyday lives. But, But the calling is sort of amplified if you are called to the political world because you have power. And mm-hmm. if power unhinged from truth and morality is a terrifying thing. And I think, again, Andrew Cuomo sort of embodies what a powerful man who's completely untethered himself from morals and truth, the destru- the wake of destruction that they can leave. And, you know, in my article, I tie together, again, this sexual harassment, abuse of the elderly, you know, championing the killing of the unborn, um, but, you know, that, that no, really, that our faith and our morals are needed more than ever for those who are in the political arena, because um, if, you are, if, you're, if you have power without those things, um, power in and of itself is, uh, can, can be used to do and advance great evils. Ashley, when I see a man of the left being undone by uh, sexual harassment allegations or this kind of thing that's happening to Andrew Cuomo, what, what always um, puzzles me is why does the left put its foot down exactly here? Because it didn't put its foot down when he was abusing the elderly and causing mass deaths in nursing homes. It didn't put it foot, its foot down and other things that, that he did wrong. Why here? Why is the left drawing a line under um, the that kind of um, ugly sexual politics at work? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. It's it's incredibly frustrating. I think there's just so much. There's so many double standards, um, and in terms of the way different people are treated, you know, all of a sudden Joe Biden decided to call on Governor Cuomo to step down. Um, for, I would add as a side note, um, something that Joe Biden himself is credibly accused of doing, in terms mm-hmm. of sexual harassment. And his vice president, Kamala Harris, is on record as saying that she believes Joe Biden's accuser. So, you know, that's a separate layer of <laughs> incoherence that we'll have to save for a different podcast. But, no, I think that's part of the problem is that we don't really have standards anymore. And so it's sort of like when the powerful just abruptly decide that, you know, this is, uh, we're going to suddenly enforce some moral norms, that's when moral norms get inf- get enforced. So but you think they're sort of choosing, they're sort of choosing that norm without any, I mean, do they have yeah. a special, do they have a special sensitivity in their hearts for, for young women or young men who are trying to get on in the world and they're being sexually abused by their superiors? Or is that not, or do you think it's just a sort of a random thing? I'm going to... This is what we can bring them down with because we're tired of them and they're becoming a liability. Well, I think that the like women's uh, like feminism and the sort of what is called the women's rights movement, which is code word for abortion, they have a particular like the elderly don't have a voice that advocates for them, and you know the unborn do, but you know we're we we struggle to you know get political leaders to respond to the 
the cries to respect the humanity of the unborn. But I do think that it must have been something about, you know, when you get the sort of feminist movement clashing with, you know, they they have a lot of voices. And so I think there must have been just a critical mass of women who said enough is enough and this is where we draw the line and they have power. So it was like the two power forces clashing. And I mean, I think you're kind of asking the million dollar question because everybody's like, what finally, you know, caused Andrew the thread? Because everybody's been watching for months wondering, is he ever going to step down? Will he ever? And then it was just like, oh, something happened, you know, behind closed doors. Nobody really knows, but it was enough to get Joe Biden to come out and say he should resign. And it was clear that everybody had just sort of, um, the critical mass had been reached and that people had decided it was time for Andrew Cuomo to go. Maybe it was just that Andrew Cuomo was doing more damage to the political left than good at this point. And they thought, let's, you know, off with your head. Wow. It's just, it's amazing to me to watch how, how people are using this as particularly, right? The, this Me Too movement is, is using this to, to get rid of people. Um, because I don't see that they have sexual norms that they're, they're unwilling to they're unwilling to um, enforce or or support any sexual norm except just this one <laughs> sometimes and it's a no, very interesting is, thing to watch this is a really important point which is that um, what he did was horrible it should be unequivocally condemned but it's going to keep happening over and we're going to live on this terrible loop of men, predator men, exploiting women as long as our laws enshrine the exploitation of the vulnerable, whether that's, the, you know, whether that's abortion or, you know, other laws resulting from the sexual revolution that allow women to be used um, for sexual purposes, children to be exploited. So I think you're absolutely right that 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 is the ultimate incoherence, which is that we are trying to have it both ways. We want to live untethered from any sexual or moral norms um, with the individual as the driving, you know, principal factor. And then at the same time, try to maintain some semblance of a society where people are protected and it just won't work. Um, We need laws that protect the vulnerable first because, and that, that requires seriously rethinking the sexual revolution, which is the ultimate problem here. Wow, Ashley, that's exactly the right point to end because um, I think you said it all perfectly. Um, As you did before in your piece, I hope that our listeners go to usatoday.com and look up Ashley McGuire's piece, Andrew Cuomo Resigns. He personifies abuse of power at the expense of the vulnerable. Thank you for joining me today, Ashley. Thanks. It was so good to talk to you, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. So we enter into the... This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. So we celebrate with joy the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, body and soul, into heaven. 
the gospel for the feast is taken from the scene of the visitation of Mary to her pregnant cousin Elizabeth, when Jesus was just a few days old in Mary's womb. We'll get to why that gospel was chosen shortly and ponder together some aspects of it. But insofar as our weekly custom is to enter into an impactful dialogue with Jesus in his own words, I hope that you'd permit me to start by mentioning a conversation Jesus had with the apostles on Holy Thursday, because it sets the scene very well for what the whole church celebrates in the Assumption. At the beginning of the Last Supper, Jesus told those closest to him, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again to take you to myself, so that where I am you also may be. Through his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, Jesus was preparing for us a place in God the Father's house, from which he would return to take us with him, so that we might be with him forever. Jesus' desire is for us to be with him always. He wanted us to believe in this reality. Starting that Holy Thursday conversation, you have faith in God, have faith also in me. He would finish it by indicating to us the means by which he would fulfill that desire. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way for us to follow to the Father's house. His truth sets us free to be able to follow. His life is the one we embrace even now. And since his life is eternal, death becomes for us just a passage into a new, fuller sense of life. If Jesus was doing this for every believer who follows him as the way, the truth, and the life, for everyone who has faith in God the Father and in him, we can certainly see how these words apply to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is praised by St. Elizabeth in the Gospel we hear this Sunday, Blessed are you for your firm faith that what was spoken to you from the Lord would be fulfilled. Mary is the foremost woman of faith whose whole life was a commentary on her words to the angel at the Annunciation, let it be done to me according to your word. She trusted that Jesus was indeed going to prepare a place for her, that he would come back to take her to himself, so that where he had ascended, she might also be. This Sunday, we celebrate the fulfillment of that promise in Mary's life. In the Gospel we'll hear at church, we will ponder Mary's famous Magnificat, her hymn of praise to God in her cousin Elizabeth's home. Mary exclaims, The Lord has done great things for me. And our first reaction is to praise God for all of the blessings he has given Mary over the course of her life. We see these great things of the Lord in her being preserved from all stain of original sin from the first moment of her conception, in her singular privilege of becoming the mother of God, and later, in the fact that at the end of her life the Lord did not allow her body to see corruption, but took her up into heaven body and soul. Thus our first response in this great solemnity is to join Mary in having our whole being magnify the Lord and rejoice in God our Savior for all the blessings he has given her and through her to the human race. Our second reaction is to venerate Mary herself for her continuously holy response to these divine graces. Mary stated that because of God's grace, all generations will call me blessed. Today we unite with the generations before us and those that will come after in so extolling her. But the main purpose of this feast, the reason faithful Catholics mark it each year, no matter what day of the week on which it falls, is to help us apply the lessons of Mary's life and assumption to heaven, to our own life. And this is what Mary herself wants to help us to do. St. John Paul II said in his beautiful apostolic exhortation on Mary, the mother of the Redeemer, 
that Mary's assumption into heaven did not take place so that she could enjoy a happy retirement or to party in celestial celebration until the end of time. Crowned queen of heaven and earth, he said. For Mary, to reign is to serve. True devotion to Mary means allowing Mary to reign as our queen. And that means to allow her to serve us as queen. She wants to serve us by helping us to become more and more like her son. To follow him is the way, the truth, and the life. To have faith in him as we do in God the Father. So that we might be able to enjoy his love and friendship in this world. And come with her to experience eternal joy with Jesus in heaven. Mary is like a mountain climber who after having scaled the heights of the heavenly Jerusalem, seeks to return from the celestial apex to show us the way, to guide and exhort and encourage us to follow her in following her son all the way to that place he has prepared for us. And so Christian piety says to her in the Salve Regina with which we finish the rosary, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this our exile, Show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus, who always honored his mother on earth, wants us to honor her. And the best form of veneration is imitation. He praised her as one who, far beyond her biological relationship with him, shows us how to hear the word of God and observe it. In Mary, we see what it means to have a consequential conversation with the Word of God in such a way that that Word can take on our flesh and totally transform our life. So in this solemnity, as we ponder Jesus' words, that He has gone to prepare a place for us and will come back again to take us to be with Him, so that we may be with Him always. Let us ask the Mother God the Father chose for His Son, and that Son from the cross chose for us, to pray that we might have faith in Jesus' promise as she did, so that we might come to that place Jesus has made ready in the Father's house, where we may have the awesome privilege to join with Mary as our souls magnify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in God our Savior forevermore. O Mary, assumed into heaven, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 